Hello and welcome to the BS History Podcast. My name is BS Dreyer and whether or not those initials are fitting, I'll let you judge. Today's episode is all about the Paleo-Siberian language isolates and what they tell us about human prehistoric migration in the Far East. Now at the moment I am working on a rather long episode, uh, which I hope to have out sometime at the end of this month. In the meantime, I stumbled on an interesting little story, which is what I'd like to talk about today. And it is this story of the Paleo-Siberian language isolates and uh, how they might be a brick in the puzzle that um, is early human migration in the Far East and in North America. Now, the varied ethnic groups that comprise the group known as indigenous Siberians are in fact a tapestry of different cultural, ethnic and linguistic peoples. Some of these groups you likely have heard of before, others are less well known. Indigenous Siberian peoples are the Kanti and Mansi peoples, the Samoyeds, various Mongolic groups, Turkic peoples, various Tungusic groups, and the Paleo-Siberian group. The last group, the Paleo-Siberian group, is actually also a diverse group in and of itself. The name Paleo-Siberian, perhaps rather obviously, stems from the assumption that these peoples lived in Siberia during the last ice age or arrived shortly after as the ice cap receded, and therefore were the oldest Siberian ethnic groups, having been present since the early Paleolithic or Stone Age. Paleo-Siberian is also a group of languages. The known Paleo-Siberian languages are the Chukotkot Kamchatkan, Nivk, Yukagir, and Yenisian, the latter of which retains about 200 speakers and all of the languages are to some extent endangered. All of them are also classified as language isolates. What this means is that these languages have no known relatives. That does not necessarily mean that these languages evolved in a vacuum and never had any linguistic relatives, but linguists have never found any definitive relations and because the languages are critically endangered today after centuries of Russification and other problems for them, we will never know their full story. That is a sad thing perhaps in and of itself, but what we do know is being pieced together by some researchers to illuminate a part of history. Today these languages have largely been displaced by first Turkic and Tungusic languages and later Russian. Tungusic peoples are likely the ones you have seen if you have seen anything on Siberian people uh, on TV or read about them. Um, the Paleo-Siberian peoples don't differ massively in lifestyle from others in modern-day Siberia, but both Turkic and Tungusic-speaking peoples traditionally gravitated towards a nomadic lifestyle akin to the Mongolic people, whereas the Paleo-Siberians were more traditional hunter-gathering societies. 
The story of the earliest humans in Siberia is one of gradual displacement. It happened there as it did in many other regions. As the climate in the north turned milder after the last ice age, humans migrated there in search of sustenance. The reason the Paleo-Siberian group fascinates in particular is that these languages might hold the key to some open questions about early human migration in Asia particularly the migration from Asia to America over the Bering Strait. See, language isolates often have many possible connections. The moniker isolate, as before mentioned, really only means that no conclusive linguistic evidence ties it to other languages. In other words, it is much harder to see a clear relation between the two Paleo-Siberian languages of Nivk and Yukagir than it is to see a relation between German and Dutch. That doesn't necessarily mean that there is none. Experts in historical linguistics, such as Edward Weida, have posited that some Paleo-Siberian languages might be related to the Nadene and Eskimo Aleut language families. You might recognize those languages as once spoken by a portion of modern-day Native Americans and Canadians. Another link between Dene and Yenisien is also touted by some. If these linguists are right in their assumptions, because of the age of the Paleo-Siberian group, it is fairly conclusive evidence that migration over the Bering Strait is how the first humans arrived in the Americas, and not as some have theorized by crossing oceans in boats. The endangered nature of... Um, Many of the languages, of course, makes the job very difficult for linguists. But if you dig into it, it seems plausible. And it is another part of the collection of the evidence that is necessary for us to conclude that it was indeed over the Bering Strait that humans arrived in America. The gradual push of Paleo-Siberian peoples to the north and east by later arrivals might explain why some people crossed over to the Americas in the first place. It was not necessarily, as is often thought, because they followed reindeer or other hunting game, although that is a likely possibility. It might perhaps also have something to do with their livelihoods being threatened by other people coming up from the south and into Siberia. There are other possible linguistic relations for the Paleo-Siberian group of languages. South of the Sakhalin Islands in Russia, where the Nipks and Tungusic-speaking Oroks live, lies the Japanese island of Hokkaido. And here is another possible link. The language of the indigenous Japanese, not the Japanese as you are perhaps uh, picturing them, the modern-day Japanese people were not the first humans to inhabit the Japanese islands. So not Japanese, the language itself as we know it today, but the language of the Ainu people, who are the indigenous uh, Japanese. The Ainu language is sometimes regarded as a possible relation. That has long been theorized but it warrants further study and drives home the point that in countries such as Japan, where protection for minority languages is often inadequate, it is worth pushing to keep these languages alive. 
Uh, NIFC is also considered a possible relation to Koreanic languages due to grammatical features. And there are more far-flung attempts at finding linguistic relatives from North Caucasian to Sino-Tibetan. Whatever the case, whatever evidence linguists might one day dig up, the Paleo-Siberian languages illustrate how people connected in the past even when there were far fewer of us and much more interconnected than many might think. Many of these connections were born out of strife and displacement, but our world would not look like it does today without the patchwork of human connections that crisscrossed across areas like Siberia, in tiny and vast territories alike, humans have met and exchanged culture and languages. And there is still far more to be learned about the distant path of Northeast Asia. The story of the Paleo-Siberian languages also reminds us of how important the work of linguists is. Their work, alongside that of anthropologists and archaeologists, gives historians an opportunity to contextualize our work in a larger and more nuanced way. It also gives us ideas for new theories about our shared past and helps us dream up possible explanations for the hitherto unexplained. So I certainly uh, extend a wholehearted uh, thank you to all the anthropologists and linguists out there. You're doing good work. I hope this little story about the Paleo-Siberian language group uh, piques your interest a little bit in um, different endangered languages and why it can be of some significance whether or not we can keep those languages alive not just for our future, but for understanding our past. I am also very happy to see that this podcast, despite my rambling style and poor audio quality, is reaching listeners across the globe. So I endeavor to keep up the output, and I welcome suggestions, questions, and critiques. You can reach me on Twitter, at bshistorypod, that's at bshistorypod, As always, I hope you think today's episode has had slightly more history than BS in it, and thank you for listening.